0: Listeners and welcome to the Unions Twenty One podcast. I'm Simon Sapper.
1: I'm Becky Wright, and
0: we're delighted to be back with you after a little hiatus. The summer seems a long time ago.
1: Did you have a nice summer, everyone?
0: Yes, I hope you did. I certainly did. Before we get into the meat of today's uh, today's podcast, Mm. can I say meat? Yes. Okay. Before we get into today's podcast,
1: <laughs> okay, yeah. which,
0: is, which is all about new organising models uh, for, for unions, we've got two cracking contributions from, from John Forth and Matthias Ascom. But before we do that, a favour to ask you. If you would be so kind. Yes. If you go onto our podcast page, which is www.unions21.org.uk forward slash podcasts, you will find
1: a handy little survey which is going to help us to work out what we do next year what's the kind of content that you like that you've been hearing from us who would you like to hear more of we're planning for 2020 and we want to know what you would like to listen to
0: we'll only take you five minutes to fill out this survey and it really will be incredibly helpful to us and i hope it will increase your listening pleasure in the future as well yeah And the other thing to tell you about is is that we have our masterclass coming up. It's on the
1: 5th of December. Yes, it is. (laughs) For a moment, I was going to go, no, November, no, December.
0: It's going to be. Oh my word. uh,
1: I'm rusty, everyone. I'm rusty.
0: It's going to be in central London. uh, And the full details of this masterclass on new union organising models can be found on our website, which is once again www.unions21.org.uk.
1: Basically, how can we help unions to operate more effectively? And what does that look like?
0: And if you think that there's not a problem about the way your union operates, you definitely need to be there. Just throw <laughs> that out there. <laughs> so first up on the uh, on this podcast, we have John Forth, who's from the Cass Business School and one of the authors of the the new union operating models discussion document.
1: Yes, I mean I think let me give you a little bit of background on this one which is John with colleagues Paul Wilman and Alex Bryson wrote a journal article which looked at union uh, operating models and how robust they are and I read it and I thought it was really interesting but it was very stats heavy and my non-statistical brain found it a little bit challenging. So I asked them if they would be very kind to rewrite it with a practitioner voice in mind. And that is what we are launching this week, the 5th of November. And he lays out some, they all lay out some really interesting uh, and quite provocative thoughts about union operating models and how strong or weak they make unions.
0: Yeah, this contribution from, from John runs to about 15 or 16 minutes. And listen out for what he calls the cost disease. Mm. Uh, and if you're thinking, oh, what does that mean? Well, it, it basic, basically, no, no, no particular spoilers here, unions like all organisations spend some money and get some income. And if you spend more than you get in, you've got a problem, clearly. What John discusses when he talks about the cost disease is, is why this is an affliction, how you know that you've got a problem, and then what you can start doing about it. And as, as Becky says,
2: not for the faint-hearted, but you, you need to listen to this. Yeah. Thank you to you all for coming and thank you for the invitation to, to be here, uh, particularly from Unions 21 for organising the session. Uh, my name is John Forth, I'm a lecturer at uh, Cass Business School. For those of you, probably most of you who may not know me, I've worked on uh, employment relations research for the best part of 20 years, in particular looking at trade unions, how they act, employee representation in the workplace and so on. So some recent research in this area, I did a report a couple of years ago for the TUC with Alex Bryson on the added value of unions, the added value that unions can demonstrate both to workers and to employers in the workplace. That's on the TUC website if you want to go look for it. I'm also a sometime contributor to the TUC's leading change program, their their training program for senior uh, union officers. So this is basically uh, a paper about union finances and operating models. It really stems from an academic paper that Paul Wilman and Alex Bryson and I published uh, earlier this year in the British Journal of Industrial Relations. I'm going to summarize that, give you the key messages and try and think forward to some of the implications from that uh, analysis. So just to explain the title I've called this uh, New Model Unions Options for the 21st Century. What do I mean by that? Well Those of you who are historians of the Labour movement will know that Sidney and Beatrice Webb, when they wrote their history of trade unionism back in 1907, they used this phrase, new model unions. And they were talking about the development of unions in the mid-1800s, when unions were increasingly moving from an operating model based very much around radical strike action towards seeking negotiated agreements with employers developing a more centralised operating model, and then also involving the presence of some full-time officials. Okay, And it has been sustained through much of the uh, 20th century in unions, three rather mundane things I suppose are necessary really to help secure union social and economic objectives. So the first is that you have a secure stream of income in order to pay for your full-time officials and your central union functions. Mostly in unions, that comes primarily from subscriptions. So as well as that stream of income, you then need control over your expenditure so that you're viable as an organisation financially. And you also need some financial reserves because what happens is in a union, you have expenditure spikes, yeah? strikes and so on. Things come along and you have these uh, expenditure spikes which you need to cover. And traditionally, unions have covered those uh, through their uh, reserves. So as I say, broadly, that's the model that's been adopted by most major unions in the UK in much of the last century, I would say. And the argument in brief that we articulate in the paper and that you'll see in this short paper from Unions 21 is that that model is increasingly in trouble. And we point to two particular issues. So firstly, weak balance sheets. So you'll, if you look across the history of trade union organisation far as we can do in, in financial accounts, you see that usually income has been hardly sufficient to cover expenditure. And so unions, as I say, have had these weak balance sheets and often covering the shortfalls by returns on assets or in some cases actual sale of assets. And then also a weakness of the model is that it relies to a large extent on what we would call off-balance sheet resources. So two forms of that so uh, the work of lay members, yeah, lay activists in workplaces who are not paid by the union, and also, to some extent, relying also on the goodwill of employers to provide facility time and so on. And, of course, those resources have been quite critical to many union functions, but they're not guaranteed in any sense and perhaps less guaranteed now than they have been in the past. <coughs> okay? So we would also argue, then, that those pressures are intensified By the operating model of most UK unions, of course, which relies on collective action. So, in contrast to some of European counterparts who are involved in welfare administration and so on, and who get income through that process, UK unions rely on income through this process of collectively organising members. And that intensifies these financial pressures. So, I'm going to articulate some more of this in a moment, give you some more of the details so you understand a bit more about the argument and then say a very little bit about some various options for the future. One option is we do nothing and we hope for the best. No strategy at all. Second, you can obviously seek to reduce expenditure, moving more activities <coughs> off the balance sheet. You can seek to increase income via subscriptions. I'll say a little bit about that. And also, maybe put forward some ideas around how unions might diversify their revenue streams via platform uh, business models. Okay. So that's the argument in brief. So the current operating model, just to say a little bit more about that. As I say, UK unions have an operating model which is not based around welfare administration, provision of benefits and so on as it is in some other countries. It's based around collective action. What that relies on is for unions to amass members, to recruit members, and then to use that leverage in the workplace to seek to negotiate with employers. The danger, of course, of any form of collective action is free riding. You have people who may benefit from the activities of the union, but for whatever reason don't choose to pay the membership uh, subscription. Okay? Historically, unions have had three ways of solving that problem. One is coercion, so the closed shop, now outlawed, of course, where people were required to join the union. Secondly, historically provision of membership benefits. So before the welfare state, unions often providing sick pay and so on to employees that provided a big incentive to join the union. Of course, those benefits now covered by the welfare state through other means. And then the third way that unions have had of trying to incentivize membership is the provision of membership-specific services. So individual representation, which can only be accessed if you're a member of the union who's negotiating for you. And, of course, that is costly for the union to provide. So, really, a union then has two or two types of problems. What we'd call the first-order problem <coughs> is how to stimulate and maintain collective action so the union can actually achieve its economic and social objectives. But then there's a second-order problem below that of how to control the costs of providing those services and funding those activities. So as I said at the outset, membership income has traditionally been insufficient to cover the costs. If you look uh, at the moment, for most unions, I think membership income is around 70% of expenditure, on average. And unions have covered that shortfall in different ways, these off-balance sheet resources that I referred to. Membership activism, union uh, employer provision of facilities for union activity, so facility time or office space and so on, or through income for investment yields or even the disposal uh, of assets. And just to point to a few weaknesses then in that model, this is data from the Labour Force Survey. That's a national survey done by the Office for National Statistics. They go into households, they talk to people about their engagement with the labour market. One of the questions they ask them is, are you a union member? And another question they ask them is, are your terms and conditions negotiated by a union? So then you can use these data to show what share of all workers who think they have their pay and conditions set by a union actually belong to a union. It's around about two-thirds. Okay. So free riding is relatively substantial, and it's growing, because the share of all covered employees who are members of a union from the Labour Force survey, is trending downwards. It's trending downwards in the private sector, it's trending downwards in the public sector. So increasingly, the employees who unions are bargaining on behalf of are not actually paying subscriptions. So another weakness of the model, now we have some data on union finances. These come from the certification officer. Every year they publish a summary of the financial reports that unions provide to them. Going from 1999 through to 2016, total income. This is all unions grouped together. I'm not separating individual unions here. This is the total income recorded across all of those returns received by the certification officer. Here is total expenditure. And what you notice is those lines are very close together. So income barely enough to cover expenditure, and in some years, expenditure going considerably above income. So this the ratio of income to expenditure roughly flat around one but with some considerable variability in individual years and that relates to uh, special expenditure particularly around plugging holes in pension schemes. Okay so we look at free riding, we look here at income barely covering expenditure. Obviously unions have reserves and they have used those reserves in the past to cover some of their expenditure which is not covered by subscription income. (coughs) So again you'll see essentially we don't need to go into the detail of this but a downward trend in other words funds being depleted and less able to cover any future uh, expenditure that might come. So we point to a number of statistics to indicate some weaknesses in the financial model if you like and what we would argue is that those are not accidental they're partly a feature of unions being a labour-intensive service industry. And if you look at other labour-intensive service industries, if you look in the economics literature, they refer to something called the cost disease. It's like it's endemic, something you can't get away from very easily. So the argument here is that if you're in some parts of the economy, let's say manufacturing, where there might be opportunities for huge technological improvements in production. What you're then able to do is to get really big productivity gains. Those productivity gains enable you to decrease the price of your good and you also end up sharing those gains with your workers. So the wages of people in those parts of the economy tend to rise through these productivity improvements. And then in more labour-intensive service sectors of the economy, those kind of technological improvements are much less easy to come by. So you could think of health, you could think of education, uh, you could think of the arts. But those people, those organizations, they still have to recruit people to work within them. And those people look at the wages in the other parts of the economy. So there's a comparability issue. And so unions in this part of the economy, they also have to raise their wages by a similar amount to retain quality staff but the scope for their own productivity growth has historically been quite low. So wages and costs rise above inflation. William Baumol articulates this argument about the cost disease, and I think we apply this argument to unions in the same way that he's applied it to arts organizations, education, and health. And his solution, he would say, is that there are different ways to solve this problem. Either you have some subsidy from volunteers, people going into schools, parents going into schools, and helping the school to provide uh, their services, or you have some kind of state subsidy. So anyway, there's a cost problem which we would argue is endemic to the way in which unions have organized as labor-intensive organizations. There are other individual cost problems that come along around GDPR and compliance with regulation and so on. So what might be some of the possible solutions? Well, one possible solution for unions is to test the price sensitivity by raising subscriptions. As I said, subscription income usually isn't sufficient to cover expenditure. And subs in the UK are actually quite low if you look in some comparative standards. So if you go to Germany, a typical union member in Germany pays around 1% of their annual salary in union subs. And in the UK, I think it's roughly about half a percent. So subs in the UK are relatively low by some international standards. It would be interesting to see (coughs) the ability of unions to test the price sensitivity uh, of raising subs. The differential in subs across unions is actually not very big when you look at the uh, income differences of their members, I would argue. One could, as Baumol suggests, look to subsidies from the state or from private sources. I think subsidies from the state are pretty unlikely. Some people are talking about auto-enrolment into union membership. I think that's a, a pretty unlikely outcome. You might look to get enhanced employer in contributions. Also unlikely, unless one can demonstrate productivity gains for employers from engaging with unions. Other options, reduce expenditure. So you could move items off the balance sheet, and that would, I argue, require a reversal of the traditional decline in member activism. We see that fewer (coughs) covered workplaces actually have lay reps than if you go back, say, 10, 20 years. Yeah, so actually, I think the the, uh, trend in member activism is downwards on average. So again, I think that's a difficult solution, although it might work in some cases. And obviously, they then come to the use of technology as another potential avenue to reduce the costs of collective action and that can be used to different degrees. It can be used on the fringes to try and make some certain processes within unions more efficient. So obviously uh, social media to organize people, to reorganize balloting arrangements and so on. (coughs) Or it might be interesting to think about taking that uh, use of technology really to what you might call one extreme and think about how some organizations are using it really as the core for their business model. So if you look at some platform business models in the commercial sector, for example, you can think of certain social networks, for example, and what are some of the features that they have? Free or low-cost access to the platform for customers rather than a subscription model. Their value proposition is built on scale. So scale is very, very important in these business models Equally, I would argue scale is very important in a union setting. And what you seek to do is to make alliances wherever you can to build the network, not just within unions, but across unions and also to organisations outside of the network. It gives you opportunities then to, to create communities, but also it gives you other opportunities to generate big data. So one example might be generating data around members' uh, working conditions in different organizations to enhance the the services that you can offer to them, telling them about what conditions are like comparatively in other organizations, which gives them a source of power in wage bargaining. But there are also commercial opportunities. So an organization like Facebook, for example, doesn't make anything from people using the app other than by uh, generating advertising Income. So big data has a number of different opportunities which could be used by unions to change the revenue model. That might mean a quite radical shift from the current subscription model to something which is more transactional. Perhaps members buying high cost services through the app. I think the issue of course for unions is that they're not commercial (coughs) organisations, have a strong democratic rationale and democratic way of working. That might make it very difficult for existing unions to adapt, so it might be the case that these more radical models might be something only that can be pursued by new entrants. But I'd be interested to hear your views. Thank,
3: thank, you, thank you,
0: John. OK, reasons to be cheerful. Anybody got any questions? So, listeners, uh, we hope you enjoyed that uh, that contribution from John, which, which was recorded at our fringe meeting at the Trade Union Congress. I was, yeah, this year.
1: No, and nicely attended. Thank you to everybody who came along and uh, supported the event. Um, I, I mean, I just think it's really, really thought provoking. Whether you entirely agree with the ideas or not, there is something that should make you sit up and really think and examine about what how your union is operating as you said before the cost disease there is a question for unions in a labor intensive operating model what what are we doing and how are we doing and how do we make sure that we're doing the right kind of things in the right ways
0: well i I think it's even it's even more fundamental than that isn't it in the sense that is it sustainable is it sustainable? I yeah. mean, my, my one of my, the quote that sticks in my mind from what John said was that unions are, an, are a labour-intensive service industry. Yeah. And I think that's almost a universal truth. Time and time again, what members want is they need to access their union Something. rep. Something, yeah. And they, need, they want to do it not virtually, but they want to do it in, per, in, in person. So if that is the case, there are certain sort of irreducible or unavoidable costs associated with that. And a time when revenue may be falling. So how do you square the circle?
1: I have to say the thing that really has been sticking in my head from the minute that we got over the first draft to the fringe to even now is there's one line in the publication which says, when the winter of discontent came, the union movement had no clothes. And I often talk about thinking about the union like a house and its members or its foundations and then you've got your walls, which Mm -hmm. are your reps Mm -hmm. and your engagement and then you've got your bargaining outcomes, which which is your roof, right? And and it's just kind of made me think, had we not really been thinking of making that house stable in all ways possible, and then when the winter of discontent did come, we realised it was just sort of made of of sand and everything just kind of went and so therefore our own kind of internal processes led us to quite a lot of the things and the experiences that we had aside from all of the things that happened to us. I don't know, I'm still mm. mulling it through and I'd be really welcome to hear everybody's kind of views on that.
0: I think so. When the winter of discontent happened, the unions were wearing no clothes. Do you agree? Summer you clothes. Summer clothes. We weren't those, totally <laughs> starkers. <laughs>
1: it's
0: true, it was summer clothes, wasn't it? Just, do you do you agree? Do you disagree? What lesson should we learn from that? We need to hear your views. We'd love you to contribute to the debate. You can email us at info at unions21.org.uk with your views and opinions. We'd love to hear them.
1: So moving on from... That contribution at Congress,
0: M- Matthias Ascom, who who at the time I think he's moved on now. He has moved on, but he, but he works for a thing called the HK Lab. Now HK is a is a Danish white collar union. It's the
1: second largest union in Denmark.
0: So, so you know, this is not a you know this is a significant in Danish labour movement ter- terms, and, and HK Lab is basically. Psh, call it what an innovation center i suppose
1: yeah hub so so you've got hk which is the main union and then they have kind of spun off to create hk lab which is operating as an entirely not an entirely separate organization but um they're not in the union building they're with a load of tech startups they're they're kind of trying to look at some of the challenges that their union faces away from the everyday place of the union
0: so if you've got the cost disease as an affliction and you've made the diagnosis kind of what's the cure what's the remedy and i think what's really interesting in what matthias says was about to say on this this podcast is this is this is one possible way
3: of dealing with that yeah well thank you for the invitation I have to say, this is a first, giving a presentation with a dramatic musical background, <laughs> and, uh, and also a first discussion, dis- uh, my first discussion of business models uh, in a trade union setting like this. And I think this is difficult. This is this difficult discussion, not only because we are trade unions, because we have a democratic <laughs> mandate and so on and so forth. It is difficult because it is difficult to move big organizations, be they organizations like us or be they commercial organizations so I'd like to uh, in 20 minutes give you like a short roundup of how we work with innovation in uh, HK uh, which is my Danish uh, trade union and I'll try to uh, give a brief introduction of uh, three points Uh, why why do we work with uh, innovation the way we do how we do it how do you go about working with innovation in a trade union It's not two concepts that ring uh, together for many people. And in the end, I'll try to give you some concrete examples of things we did and the experiments that we have provided. But first of all, the question, why? It's a good question because there are other options. One of them would be just try to forget that things are changing and there is a problem at all and just keep the ship afloat. And I mean, it speaks to the strengths of all of our organizations that we are able to keep the ship afloat still. I mean, my union, we have uh, next year our 120th year celebration. 120 years. That's massive. Not many organizations can live for 120 years. So we are a success. And we could perhaps still keep going the way we do. But if I were to shortly in three points explain why we still need to innovate, it would be uh, three points. First of all, we have a problem with membership. And I don't think really, at least in my union, HK, we realized how big our problem is. We for many years also have had a membership decline, losing 3%, 4%, 5% a year. It's a lot if you total it together, but each year it's only a small drip uh, into the ship. But what we've done in the lab is try to structure our membership in another way. Uh, We can see that 40% of our members, we risk losing them in the coming years. You can see the younger generations, our intake (coughs) is not on the same level as our current main memberships. So we have a challenge in the composition of our members. Something is changing. And perhaps it's been going slow, but there's a hole in the tooth and we need to do something about it. The other one is the world around us is changing, but for our members in HK, us being mainly white collar workers, uh, working in the service sectors, in public administration and so forth, robotics, software robots, all of this will affect how they go to work every year. It will affect the tasks that they do, the jobs that they have. So we also need as a trade union two things to keep updating the skills of our members, finding what are the new jobs, what are the skills required for them, but also as a trade union, try to utilize all these new possibilities stemming from these new technological opportunities. And thirdly, what we see, it goes together with the two other points, is our members, they're part of society. They see all of society around them changing, so they also have expectations for us to change have a new sense of service that we didn't see before Uh, we in the lab we do a lot of um, interviews with members and I spoke to one member and she told me that uh, her trade union fee was the single highest expenditure she had voluntary expenditure of course she buys foods and have an apartment and so on but it was the single highest expenditure she had every month the second highest was uh, Netflix and her phone. And as she said, I use them all the time. So she also expects to get value from a trade union membership all the time. Not only as an insurance or as collective bargaining and so forth, these very abstract principles, but day-to-day service and value that she can feel. And that is a growing expectation from our members. So we are challenged. I guess you can all relate to that. Something needs to be done. It would be easy to say that we need to change everything, but I think that would be the wrong conclusion. What I try to make the point is, we need to work on two frontiers at the same time. We have a strong basis today in HK, probably as well in your trade unions. As I showed you our membership, we have a very good union for some of our members. We need to improve that part, make it more uh, strong, make it more withstanding uh, from all of these new challenges. But we need to do that at the same time that we try to build a future way of having a trade union. And we need to do both things, not in competition, but invest a bit in both. Also, that perhaps is one of the answer. Do the unions need a new business model? Yes but perhaps it's not just one, perhaps it's multiple different business models that we could use. Different business models for different types of members. So we try to build, create uh, the new tomorrow at the same time that we're trying to strengthen the HK of today. (laughs) So, easy, right? But how do we do it? Well, what we found in HK was that we have needed a new way of doing this. Because it's easy to get ideas. I guess you've all been through a lot of different workshops where you say, okay, let's start from blank sheet. How would we build a trade union today? It's quite easy to find all the ideas. But the hard part is how do you then work with these ideas? How do you test the assumptions? How do you qualify it? How do you go from I think and I believe to now we have some data? That is what we try to build, uh, building uh, HK Lab. We've been uh, going for uh, two years, and we uh, started officially at our uh, latest congress in HK. Uh, and we were built with two tasks. Our task is not to try to predict the future. There's a lot of different perceptions about what will technology bring, what will the future for trade unions be. Our task is not to try to make very big reports, try to do future research. Rather. The best way to predict the future is to try to create it. So our task is to try to develop new product and business models for HK as a trade union. Not to, to, to implement it all the way, but to uh, provide learning for HK for different strategic possibilities in the future. We draw ourselves sort of like on the edge of HK. Uh, in many ways uh, that is true. Uh, Our office is outside of HK main office. We have our own budget. We have uh, some independence. That is, we can start our own projects. We don't need to get acceptance for our ideas. We can try them out ourselves. We have some discretionary budget to do that. But also, we're working closely together. I think the picture would be to uh, envision a a rubber band uh, around two hands. Our job is to try to uh, pull the rubber band, try to provoke HK to move into other ways of being a trade union. And to do that, you need to have tension, you need to be provocative, (coughs) but also you need to be close enough to HK not to uh, have the rubber band collapse and spring. So we try to be sort of like the filter between the new world of new technologies, new possibilities, and try to facilitate that into HK union. So our partners is found mostly in startup tech, uh, young companies eager to prove that they can solve problems, can we build an artificial intelligence that can find the answer to specific questions in a collective agreement, for instance, and then we partner that with problems found in in HK Union. But just to give you an understanding of how this is different from working like we used to do, I use this uh, allegory. There's two ways of working with innovation. Uh, The first one is like playing Minesweep. I guess if you had work in the 90s, you all know Minesweeper. Uh, And you also know the winning strategy, how do you do it? You make very few bets. Actually, what you do is you think really, really hard to avoid having chance be any part of it. And then if you get to a situation where you cannot find the optimal solution, what you do is you do one big shot, one big bet, bet all of it, and then hopefully it all goes well. This is how we used in some ways to work with uh, innovation in HK. I can use the example because I was part of the team myself. In 2011, (coughs) we built our first mobile app, very first moverish of us. Uh, The members said they want an app, so we built it. Only took half a year and half a million Danish kroners. It was one big shot. We bet that that was what they wanted. We launched it and we found, nah, Really, what they wanted was to be able to get in contact with the union. A mobile <laughs> optimized web page would have done it. Us being able to pick up the phone when they called would be the optimal solution. <laughs> but what we, how we used to work was we had the idea and then it was a political uh, task. Can I convince the right people in my union to bet on my idea? What we do now is try to work more like how you would win a game of battleships. You all know the game. How you win is not having all your shots going at the same place again and again and again. How you win is try to shoot all over the place because if you have many shots, then there's a higher chance of some of it succeeding. So that is how we try to work in uh, the lab. We were funded uh, two years ago and have a three year funding. Our funding, I calculated (laughs) 1.8 million British pounds a lot of money but compared to our overall budget in the union it's uh, somewhat in HK five percent of our yearly income and that funds all three years so it's a very uh, small portion of our budget that we uh, committed to this and what we do is try to not vote on the ideas but go through all of them testing the the assumptions uh, along the way remember the app that I built <coughs> how we build it for HK union was We sat down, uh, proportioned and detailed, and uh, made this very good plan, having all the different features in the app that we could conceive. And so we built a Rolls-Royce model of the app from the get-go, thinking that we would know what our members needed, because we're experts, right? What we do now in the lab is try to, instead of having, I think, We always have like a notion of what would the Rolls Royce model be of any given idea. But we try to test each and every assumption along the way. One of the cases I will show you in the end is a chatbot we built. The chatbot was the Rolls Royce in the end. But what we did was go into schools, test all of our assumptions. The first time we went into a school and gave mobile phone in the hands of one of our potential members and said this is a chatbot. It weren't a chatbot. It was just a normal uh, messenger chat feed. So they weren't able to chat with any uh, artificial intelligence, rather a normal human intelligence. But that gave us the first uh, learnings. What would they ask? How would they ask it? Would they even uh, use it? We also do a lot of advertising in uh, HK Lab, trying to advertise the idea. Now, here is the new all-inclusive wage platform where you can all, find all the details and so on and so forth. And we advertise before we build it because if nobody would click on the AdWord then why use budget and time to build it? But this is how we try to go about it, testing all the assumptions. What are the assumptions behind this idea? If they are to use uh, the app, can we find anyone who would use it for a day? If we gave them a mock-up in their hands, what would they press? Would they want to search for a job, as was one of the features? At least eight years ago, they didn't want to do that. So we try to test our assumptions, and then when we find something that works, we give it to HK. This is basically what this our business model shows. We start with a good idea, a assumption that we challenge, or a new technolo- technological um, opportunity then we go out can we find a m- member that have a problem that this would be the solution for that's a good test if you have an idea if you cannot find just one single member that says something that would be the problem for the solution then it's probably not uh, viable uh, so we go around talk to members and then try to test the ideas again and again and again with a chatbot. we ended up testing I think it was three or four different iterations of the chatbot, testing the language, the way of answering, the content, all of these assumptions (coughs) along the way. And then when we find something that we can see, now we have had a small time test, we can see that it works in this very limited scale, then that is learning that we provide for HK. And then it's basically up to HK to decide, well, now it's not about do we think or do we believe, But now we can see in this test, now we know that a chatbot or what it is does this and this and this and have these and these results. Then you can take the strategic discussion on a somewhat informed level. So, it's not easy. It's not easy. But it's, I think, important to find new ways of thinking. And even if you don't have money to form your own innovation lab, there are still steps you can take. Perhaps the first step would be to get other questions to ask when people come to you with an idea. The first question that I would ask was, well, did you hear it from somebody else? Did you find a member that this, uh, this solution would solve anything for? And then what concrete testing have you been doing? So it's better to test your ideas than just to go with your stomach feel, right? so what did we then build well coming back to uh, the point about perhaps the solution is not just one new (coughs) business model perhaps it's a lot of different business models really what we've been trying to is to go much more you could say narrow into uh, the member base of HK what we do is we go out find a problem that it only needs to be one of our members have, and then we try to build a solution for that, because if you go about top down as we normally do in, in unions, we have all of these membership surveys, we find that the general member is this fable animal that doesn't exist, but our members are very very different. So one size does not necessarily fit all. What did we do? Um, did a lot of different things. Uh, the chatbot uh, we built. The target (laughs) demographic for our experiment was young part-time workers. Our uh, challenge was, can a chatbot be a better channel for engaging them? Uh, And we found through our testing that uh, we increased the amount of contact with the target group 12-fold compared to the hotline by phone we used to have. And now HK implemented it and now we have uh, 30 times as many individual contacts with this demographic that we used to have. What else did we do? We made a uh, freelance borough, same as uh, here, I guess. Freelancing work cut into tasks. Uh, It's also all the (coughs) rage in Denmark, and we have a lot of members who want to try this out. They want to have perhaps uh, supplementary uh, income through working different tasks. It's been easier, it made easier to find the jobs, but it's not easier to do all the administrative work associated with it, to do the taxes and so on. So it built like a freelancing community where we provide all the service from the normal labor market on this new type of labor market. Still, as a small time experiment, but now HK is continuing this line of work. This was an easy way of trying it out before it became... Big threat to our normal business model. <coughs> try it out small scale, see what would happen, and then you can scale it afterwards. Uh, we m- worked with VR. Can you train people to social interactions through VR? We made a case about going to an exam. The next would be doing a job interview. We found new ways of working with software robots. Tried to distill what are the new jobs associated with this found that for our members it could be to code them or to be the specialist uh, going through the processes that the software robot would work with. And also we worked with uh, humanoid (coughs) robots. We bought a Pepper robot, employed in our union as a receptionist, trying to test would our members be willing to speak to a robot when they came into the union. Again, trying to provoke but also to test our assumptions. And actually, some of them were willing to go to the robot. So. Just a few examples to uh, inspire and perhaps also initiate some discussion afterwards. But just to sum up what we do in our lab, how we work, instead of what we would normally do in HK, to start with what is viable in HK, what suits our priorities, our strategies, our political way of thinking, what we do is we start the other way around. We start with what could be a solution for our members. Then we test it. Then we test if it's technological viable, if you can build it, and then it's up to HK to decide to then implement it. Remember the rubber band around uh, the hands. Our task is to try to provoke HK to provide learning of all of these different options. And then perhaps some of it can be implemented by HK. I think normally you would say that when you start something, you need to have a strategy. And then when you have a strategy, you do something, you have actions. We think another way around. We do something, we learn, and then HK can build strategy on top of that. Thank you. Thank
0: you. So my my favorite quote from that Becky mm-hmm. one that sticks in my mind is the best way to predict the future is to try and create it.
1: Is that not the truth, universal truth? You know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yes, but the, but actually, even though that's, that's a nice form of word, I love words, you know that. Um, <laughs> it, 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 actually, really what I think we took from what Matthias was saying is actually innovation's great, but you've got to know what you're innovating for.
1: Yeah, and also there's a difference between having things done to you and you being integral in the development of that thing, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It kind of made me think of the Swedes. You, you know, just the whole idea of the future of work is coming... So what's the union voice in trying to shape that? And if we are trying to shape it, then we are better prepared for what happens as opposed to all of a sudden these sorts of things happen to us and we haven't had any kind of forewarning or really thought about it in yeah, any way, I shape think, or I form. Think, I
0: think that's true. And, that, and and following straight on from that is is kind of like, where is the UK equivalent of the HK lab? And it's kind of like... <sighs> And then it goes back to a point that when we were discussing something with Gavin Kelly, you mm-hmm. know, a year ago, mm. you know, he, he was saying, you look at the trade union sector in the UK. Where's you know, the R&D? Where's the R&D? What's the R&D spend? And...
1: But, but also, uh, what I would say is, having now sat through a couple of presentations from HK Labs, is that we have to be really careful in not looking at it and thinking, "Oh, tech, shiny, startups." And that's innovation. And for me, the link between John and Matthias is really getting to grips with what the challenges are for unions and what the kind of uh, all levels, right? The internal and the external. And then actually thinking around, well, here are our problems. What is it that we need to kind of innovate around? And not necessarily throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Do you know what I mean? So, like, people could very easily go, oh, app. Oh, chatbot, Oh, shiny thing. But actually it might not be, the innovation might not be about hard tech, it might be about how do we teach our reps more effectively. How are we making sure that they know how to do one to ones? How are we making sure? You know, it's, there's things in all of this I, I, which is I, yeah, really I agree. interesting. I
0: agree, really, really. And, and, you know, one size is not going to fit all. But no. I absolutely take the point that there's no magic bullet. No. You know, we, we, we'd be crazy to think, yeah, we just have a chatbot and that sorts it all out. Mm. And sometimes it is, it is the little things that make a world of difference. There was, there was, I went into one union office. Uh, I won't say which union it is. I went into one union office re- re- recently and they were grappling with the fact that they used to have someone who came in for, for four or five hours a day to do kind of admin work.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and that, that one person had left and they were umming and ahhing about whether or not they could be replaced or, or whatnot. But what they found was that, was that what the members valued most of all about that office was that if they phoned up, by the time the phone had rung four times, someone would have picked it up and said, can I help you?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And that, yeah, it, it's that level of response and interaction that, that made the difference in that scenario.
1: Yeah, yeah. Which a chatbot might not necessarily address, but then a chatbot might be useful and interesting in other different ways. So it's about, I think, understanding what our true problems are and what the needs are, and then trying to address it through various different uh, bits and bobs. The other, th- the other thing I should say that I really like about what HK Labs are doing is small scale. So, they're not doing big, massive projects; they are taking the pro- the problems, looking at it in all angles, thinking about lots of different solutions to that problem, and then trialling them out and seeing what works and what could be scalable. so what could go actually be mainstreamed and what doesn't work when you did it and When I think of a lot of union projects and initiatives, always seems to me that we go for the big bang.
0: It's glossy and glossy, shiny like and the, you know. Expensive. And I say this
1: as having been a part of, you know, one union's attempt to kind of do, right, we need to do this. Let's put a load of money into this and see what we can do. You know, I think the lesson for us in all of that was, you know, try start small, see what works, see what you need to amend and then scale up rather than just go straight into the big kind of glossy... Uh, you know, everybody needs to see it kind of project.
0: What do you think about that, listeners? Do you, have you got examples of, of things that have started big and been pushed down or things that have started small and been scaled up? And which worked best? Which worked? Which didn't work at all? What were the unintended consequences? We'd love to hear this. We'd love to hear... Hear your views if you email us in at info unions21.org.uk. That's the best way to get in touch with us. Or alternatively, you can come along, if you're able to do so, to the Masterclass about Union Organising Models on the 5th of you, December.
1: You can indeed. It is free for all Unions 21 supporters.
0: And if you want to become a Unions 21 supporter because you're not one at the moment, you can do that first and then... And then
1: you can go. <laughs> and then you can come
0: along to the, to, to, to the Masterclass. I, I, it's all about change, isn't it? Ch- identifying the need for change successfully yes. prosecuting change
1: yes welcome to 2020 everyone <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my word oh my word <laughs> listeners it's been our pleasure to have you uh, have your company for for this podcast it's been good to be back R- sat around the microphone and talking talking to you wherever you may be we will be back Probably in about four weeks' time, I think, when we will reflect on a a month's worth of activity around union organising models, including the Masterclass. On that podcast, we hope to have Dean Rogers, uh, latterly of the National Association of Probation Officers, but moving on to the Society of Radiographers. Indeed. And we'll have Betsy Dilner, who's the director of the Social Change Agency.
1: all to talk about changes in organisations and how you can make change.
0: Make change happen.
1: Make change happen, yeah. (laughs) Listeners, and, it's been lovely to have you.
0: It has indeed. indeed.
1: Have <laughs> you had a nice cuppa while you were listening.
0: Uh, and we'll see you next time. So it's goodbye from me.
1: And it's goodbye from me.
0: The Unions 21 podcast is presented by Becky Wright and Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.